Welcome to Legville. I'm producer Eric Sagan. Support for Legville comes from two places. Sponsors we genuinely love, and people just like you. If you'd like to help us keep the lights on in Legville, you can find our Patreon at patreon.com slash Podcast. Again, that's patreon.com slash Podcast. The second wave of support comes from our sponsors, places and products we sincerely, truly love. The first is Elsa's. In the 90s, a Scandinavian woman took a cab from Toronto to Montreal and opened a bar in the Plateau Montréal. The rest is history. Perhaps the best place in Montreal, if not the world, to have a lively conversation, a good drink, and some great food, Elsa's wants you to enjoy each other. Also sponsoring the podcast is Good Mix. Good Mix includes a wide range of prebiotic fiber, which promotes microbial diversity in the gut flora. You can get 15% off your next purchase of Good Mix at Amazon and at goodmixfoods.com by using the code LIKEFILL when you check out online. You can find links to our sponsors at our website, www.likevillepodcast.com. Without further ado, here's our host, John Faithful Hamer, introducing today's episode. Welcome to the Likeville Podcast. This is John Faithful Hamer. Today we are going to be talking with a friend of the podcast. This is your third time on the podcast, Jonathan Kay. Welcome, John. Yeah, third time. I was yeah, promised third, a t-shirt. Yeah, <laughs> something like that. Uh, so today we're going to be talking about uh, a book that Jonathan Kay has written with the co-author Joan Moriarty. Is that it? Is that how right. it's Moriarty? Uh, last like the last name is like the bad guy from Sherlock Holmes. That's what I thought, but usually, but there's kind of an extra I in there, and I, it was throwing me for a loop. But uh, so the, the book is the called I... Your Move: uh, What Board Games Teach Us About Life. It uh, this podcast will be coming out uh, on the same day that it, the book is released on September 11th. Why? Why September 11th, man? Was that? Well, was that... September 11th. We're having a book launch. I think the the official date of the book's release, I think, is is in a few days. Although that kind of doesn't matter so much anymore. Everyone, if people are interested, they order on Amazon. And the difference between an order and a pre-order on Amazon, it doesn't make much of a difference. You get it in a week anyway, right? So um, the the big thing we're doing tomorrow is we're having an event uh, at a gaming cafe here in Toronto called um, Stormcrow. So we're recording this on the 10th. Uh, we're having our, our launch event at Stormcrow. Uh, and it's one one of a number of, of gaming-themed cafes in Toronto, including Snakes and Lattes, which is, is actually now known throughout North America. They've got a couple of locations. So uh, one of the nice things is that we're able to choose a suitable locale to launch this thing. Okay. Well, I know because I, I pre-ordered it, and it said that I couldn't... It would... Because I got the Kindle version. It's just going to be... Um, downloaded onto my phone, but it'll be downloaded onto my phone at midnight on, well, tonight. I mean, we're recording this on the 10th. It'll be, uh, it's released by Amazon on uh, on the 11th. But uh, so, I mean, you, this is very interesting because you've mentioned for years that you were into board games and you were into all this, you know, but I, I didn't really understand you know what you got out of it or how you thought about it and so it was very interesting kind of getting a a view into a whole side of you that i didn't i I didn't really know right because i mainly see the guy who's the journalist and the editor and so 
you know, I hear you talking about a bunch of different things, but this is a very different side of you. But so what do you get out of board games and what do you think they tell us about life? So the idea about the idea about getting something substantial out of board games intellectually is only going to make sense if you understand that there's all these great games out there that have come around primarily, though not exclusively in the last couple of decades that really take the idea of board game well beyond what a lot of listeners are going to remember from like their rec room, you know, Candyland and Monopoly and Stratego and Battleship and stuff like that. Uh, we, we, we scarcely mention those games because I, well, we have a couple oh, of chapters. You've got two on Mono- chapters on Monopoly. Monopoly yeah. Yeah. Yeah, you can't ignore Monopoly because it's Monopoly is like a point of reference for so many people. Okay, well, maybe uh, before you talk about the awesome ones, why don't you talk about the ones that suck and why they suck? Well, you know, I don't want to, I don't want to be judgmental, but <laughs> yes, like, you do. Uh, well, yeah, okay, I do. I wanna yeah, <laughs> about every subject. You so, trashed Scrabble, which was so painful to me. So I love I that game. I tell people, I say, I'm not a gaming snob. It's just that I subject games to withering scrutiny if they don't meet my standards of complexity and aesthetics. You know, does, does that make me a gaming snob? Yeah, pretty they much. Know. Yeah, maybe. Okay. Yeah. So uh, I think if you if you are a kid and you enjoy Candyland and you enjoy uh, you know, these other, so they're they're derisively called uh, Ameritrash by gaming snobs. If you enjoy it because you're you know you're a kid, fine, that's great. I mean, in fact, for most people, it's like a gateway thing. One of the arguments in the book, though, uh, is that if if you're an adult and you're looking for games, uh, you know, you should expand your horizons. Like my my co-author, my co-author Joan, uh, she works as a she's worked for years as a games guru, as it's known in, in some of these board gaming cafes like Snakes and Lattes. And she says, you know, smart people will come in, groups, people on dates, friends, you know, clearly intelligent, intellectually curious people. And they have a whole whole wall full of some of the best games that have been published in the last couple of decades. But these adults will go play, you know, they'll, they'll just revert to the games they played when they were 10 years old because that's what's familiar. It's like walking into a restaurant ordering, uh, you know, the same meal you've had uh, since you were a kid. Mm-hmm. And but but if, but if if you're listening to this and your only point of reference is like you know Battleship or whatever, yeah, it's not there's not much you can take from a game of Battleship. It's it's a game for kids and uh, not like there's any kind of uh, higher purpose to the game or anything like that. Um, I I've tried a couple of the games that are mentioned. <laughs> Uh, we played my my wife and I with some friends. We played um, Pandemic. Right. We played it twice with some, and it's very. I really really liked it. You know, I I know you, uh, you talk about how you you really don't like the cooperative games because you find that yeah. uh, you very quickly it, it takes away a lot of the fun and that you run into the problem of the the kind of the alpha player, which yeah, we so ran into. Back. Immediately. Step back. I'm just gonna step back so listeners know yeah. uh, what, what a cooperative game is because okay, most people who have some passing knowledge of games they know a typical competitive game where you know in Monopoly one person wins everybody else loses but a cooperative mm-hmm. game uh, you know Pandemic is, is an example that's popular uh, everybody wins or everybody loses so there's a group objective. There's a group objective, and it's either met or it's not met. And mm-hmm. I personally am not a big fan of. I personally am not a big fan of uh, 
cooperative games because it tends to be taken over by the so-called alpha player problem uh, alpha player problem where one person is really good at the game or bossy or some combination thereof and tells everybody else what to do mm-hmm. and it can ruin the game experience there are ways to get around it but yeah as i was saying if your only knowledge of any of these games comes from battleship or something like that you're not going to see anything any like rich intellectual threads coming out of this genre but if you're open to exploring some of the games i think pandemic is one of them but there's there's hundreds uh, of, of, of classics that have emerged in the last couple of decades. Some of these games have much richer narratives. Uh, they demand more of players. They're much more immersive. Uh, they have more interesting themes. And you know, I don't want to overstate it. Um, you know, there's a tendency that you know people talk about video games as an art form or graffiti as an art form. And yes, they have artistic elements, but it's not so much board games as an art form that the book celebrates, celebrating board games as a way to think about human society and some of the incredible lessons these games have in terms of group dynamics, uh, the themes of the game, but also just like the character traits that emerge when people are playing these games. Yeah. Uh, that's one, yeah, one of the well, things. You can see about. very, it's an interesting to watch people's personalities come out when you're playing a game because you can, you know, it's, it's not just whether... They're competitive or not. It's that some people, if they are feeling like they're not doing very well at the game, they'll just like yeah. act like, oh, I don't really care. And they'll just be like, oh, this is just a game. And I, I just don't take it very seriously. And, and that becomes like really annoying <laughs> like, because yeah, you're, so- you're like, we're, we're devoting four hours to this. Like, you know, at least give it your full attention and try, right? Like, uh, but you, so yeah, you can see a lot of people's, of yeah. The first chapter. First chapter of the book. Yeah, the first chapter of the book. Uh, first chapter of the book has a great uh, riff on this, which is that you don't want to play people who play with people who take the game hyper seriously and ruin everybody's fun because they're completely competitive. But it's also a complete drag when you're playing with somebody who just checks out, doesn't care. Yeah. So there's this like optimum level where a person is is thematically engaged and they're engaged in the activity and they want to win. Uh, so that it, it sets up. Um, sets up a tension mm-hmm. uh it's sort of like you know the, a rope can only have tension if both people are pulling on it yeah. but if one person has just said oh this is stupid and sometimes they're doing that out of defensiveness like you know if, if you can't try and win you you won't be embarrassed if you lose yeah and uh and so if you're if, if the environment is such is one that the person does feel that they're going to be embarrassed if they lose that that may not be that person's issue it may be the issue of other people around the table um and this is the so-called uh, magic circle that my my co-author Joan talks about, which is it's a, an area where uh, it's okay to fail. The function of games is it's something that's competitive and engrossing, but it also there's a social contract that says it's okay to fail because it's just a game. And if you're in an environment where it's not okay to fail and people will think you're stupid if you fail, well then it's not going to be fun. And and the only games people are going to play are, are games that they feel like. Well, I already know the rules of this game, so I'm not going to look like an idiot. Yeah, uh, you know the example I gave. Uh, I just didn't. I just did an interview with uh, for a TV station here, and the example I was asked about Trivial Pursuit, and I, I I don't like Trivial Pursuit, and one of the reasons I don't I don't like Trivial Pursuit is uh, there's this social ritual that takes place before the game begins where people say, "Oh, uh, Sarah." You'll do really well in Trivial Pursuit because you're so smart, and you know, oh yeah, Sarah, you know, she'll do great. And but the implication of that is that uh, those of us who don't do well, including maybe Sarah, if Sarah doesn't do well, if if we don't do well, it means we're dumb. And who <laughs> who wants to play? 
like by the way, I'm I'm not good at trivial pursuit. I you know I don't remember who directed you know all these films or won the Super Bowl twenty years ago or whatever. But uh, I do you know I'll play it to, to get along. But I I don't know why it's so popular because how can an how can a, a, a high school test of information be fun? To me, it's just like and it's not it's not even a game in the traditional sense because there's nothing you can do in the game to improve your your score. You either know the answer to questions or you don't. And you know if you do, you'll get the answers right and you'll win. And if you don't, you'll look dumb. So that that to me is an example of of a game that's not inviting in terms of like getting over people's hurdles why they don't play games. Yeah, I I, I think the basically the uh, the attraction of Trivial Pursuit is the same as the attraction of people who just can memorize huge amounts of data and reproduce it like baseball scores, football scores, who won, you know, the little kids who memorize all the dinosaurs and stuff like that. It's uh, yeah, it, it's not, not particularly fun, but you, you mentioned um, at one point in the book, you said you'd only played Monopoly once with your wife and you were winning and she, she said, you know, I've never seen this side of you before in a very yeah. kind of unhappy. So what is it about Monopoly that makes people so angry at each other? So here's what's wrong with Monopoly is Monopoly is what's known in engineering uh, or sciences more generally as an unstable dynamical system, meaning that as the system tends toward one extreme, the forces in the system keep driving it toward that extreme. So if you're beating me, you have more money, you can buy more properties. I have to sell my properties. I have to mortgage stuff. I have less income. So my response to you winning is creating a situation where you're more likely to keep winning. Uh, it's kind of like when you stand a pencil on its tip and it starts tipping in one direction, it'll keep tipping that direction. Yeah. And the Matthew effect, right? Like who's Matthew? <laughs> That's what, uh, uh, Malcolm Gladwell refers to it as the Matthew effect, and I don't think he's the one who coined it. It's it's basically from a, a line in the New Testament where uh, it says, you know, them uh, unto them unto them who have more shall be given, and unto those who hath little, what little they have shall be taken away. Yeah, it's one exactly. of the most harsh like statements in the New Testament, and. So um, Malcolm Gladwell in Outliers talks about the Matthew effect, about how like, you know, small little advantages that you have early on in life compound themselves quite rapidly and make it very likely that you're going to have an advantage. So there you go. What Matthew said. <laughs> it's, uh, and but now in a game environment, the problem with that is that uh, you often know who's going to win in, like in the first half hour because you see these advantages building up, but everybody has to stick around for the next couple of hours as this like grim outcome plays itself out. Yeah. And for a lot of people, there's no way to get back in the game. They're just sitting there losing. And if you're sitting there watching someone win, that's going to create like unhappy sentiments. It's not going to be a fun gaming experience. And for some people, they're just going to, they're going to get kicked out of the game. They're going to go bankrupt. And, you know, they go watch TV while everybody finishes. Mm -hmm. It's one of the reasons why modern game designers think of Monopoly as 
an example of how not to design a game. So, but if you look at it, Settlers of Catan, for instance, uh, which is, you know something you're familiar with, and some of your listeners are going to be familiar with. It's it's a what's known as a sort of a Euro game they call it because it's come out of the last few decades of, of European game design. No one gets eliminated from it. There's going to be a winner. There's going to be a loser. But the winner typically doesn't like trounce the loser. Uh, you know, they might get ten points, and the loser gets like six or seven. The other thing that's that's important is there's a dynamic within the game that renders the dynamic more stable, mm-hmm. and that is, as as you know, it's it's the so-called robber, and the robber is this thing that you know you put it, you roll a seven, you put it on someone's property, and that property no longer yields uh, dividends. And the effect of it is that nine times out of ten, the robber ends up late in the game on a property of somebody who's winning. So it's the opposite of the monopoly effect. The, the robber actually helps people who are losing and hurts someone who's winning. And mm-hmm. every every successful modern game that's been produced in the last 10 or 20 years has that effect in some way. That it gives it's like progressive taxation. Progressive it's exactly taxation. Like, oh, yeah, that's, that's quite right. And um, in my chapter on the book, you know, I'm very big on using game dynamics to model like real life phenomena. I talk about how, like, what would a game of Monopoly look like uh, that was that had some progressive welfare state elements in it? Uh, well, for one thing, you know, like you'd pass, uh, you'd pass go, and if you were super rich, you might not get money, and if you didn't have any money, you might get money. Um, or, uh, you know, that card that says you're assessed for street repairs, you have to pay uh, money for all the houses and hotels you have. Uh, there would be a lot of those cards because those mm-hmm. cards essentially, uh, you know, a form of property taxation. Uh, it's a wealth tax, yeah. and so a, a more progressive and, and I would argue a more fun game uh, of, of Monopoly would uh, would have those things. And and as I developed that chapter, it's one of my favorite chapters because it allowed me to sort of think out loud some of the things that we like and don't like about capitalist economies. You you don't want a perfectly communist economy where there's no incentive to win or lose. And, you know, the example of Monopoly would be like a game where, you know, every time you land on a space, 100% of your wealth is confiscated. Uh, <laughs> but, 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 but the current Monopoly system is almost a perfect caricature of capitalism. It's, it's an unstable system, winner take all. Uh, it's, it's no fun for everybody who loses, and it sucks. It's not fun. So, mm-hmm. uh, you know, in, in the same way most Western countries sort of muddle through to a kind of compromise between socialism and uh, and capitalism. Uh, I think game designers have done a similar process as they've tried to figure out, like, what's the degree of cutthroat competition that'll make the game fun, but also provide a lifeline to people who aren't winning and give them a chance to get back into the game. Yeah. Well, I like what I was thinking about. And I was writing in the margins of your book, uh, there's this wonderful thing that uh, Jordan Peterson says in 12 Rules for Life, where he says it's important to realize that the most important uh, objective, that your number one priority whenever you're playing a game is to be invited to the next game. It's not to win this particular game. Like you, There's nothing wrong with being competitive. In fact, there's nothing wrong with being very competitive. But if you're willing to win at any cost, if you're ruthless, like that, um, I love that little anecdote you said about playing with your, 
your friend, uh, Mr. Chu, where, you know, he's, he's like willing to like drastically reduce the value of that property. And you're kind of, he's kind of got you like he, you're stuck or something like that. And you're like, well, you know, do I just screw the person? Do I like, you know, should we just like, you know, mess them over? And so do you want to make it, um, like sometimes people will actually just reject your offer, you know, because yeah, it's well, so rude. That's a chapter. Right? That was my chapter on a game called Chinatown. Yeah. Uh, and, and it's also, there's a game called no thanks that I discussed in that chapter. And, uh, yeah, I think you, you've, you've got a bit of it there, but I, I would just tease that out and say that in that chapter, I was talking about how these ideas feed into evolutionary psychology because the example I gave with my friend, John Chu, who also figures in the Scrabble chapter because he's one mm -hmm. of Canada's great, greatest Scrabble players. Uh, he intentionally screwed me over in a way that <laughs> that didn't advantage him. Like it, it, it just, uh, it just, it hurt me without advantaging him. It was like a gratuitous mm -hmm. screw screw over of me, um, and because he knew he knew I had an asset in the game that uh, there was only one person who was going to buy it because of. The, the your floral shop, right? You're like, yeah, it was like yeah. this game where, where you're positioning little businesses around uh, Canal Street in Chinatown, and you know, hundred years ago. But uh, but he he did this this gratuitous gesture that shafted me, and it wasn't like he was just driving a hard bargain. He just it was kind of just like a gratuitous shaft. Mm -hmm. And I, I talked about how the way I responded to that was, even though he shafted me. Rationally speaking, it was still a good idea for me to take the deal because otherwise I had a stranded asset. No one else on the table was going to give me a deal for it. He was the only one in that game who, who for whom the asset had any value. Uh, and even if he were um, screwing me on the price, I still should have taken whatever meager money he was offering because, you know, it's it's rational to take something instead of nothing. But I didn't. I, I said, you know what? Screw it. I'm not going to, you know, I'm, I'm not going to make the deal with you. And then I, I spent the rest of the chapter figuring out like what it is what it, what is it in my evolutionary psychology that that made me do that? And I looked at there are some famous studies in sociology on this where uh, you know a, a, a pair of, of test subjects are are asked to divide ten dollars, and and the person who who splits it um, gets to keep his his portion as long as the other person accepts his portion. So typically, what happens is like the guy who's splitting it will say, okay, I'm going to take eight bucks and you're going to take two bucks. And the guy who takes two bucks will say, okay, fine. He'll take the two bucks and the guy takes eight bucks. But there, there comes to be splits that are so extreme that the person who's receiving it just rejects it. Like the guy who says, here, I'm taking nine bucks, you take a buck. And even though a buck is better than nothing, the guy getting a buck says, you know what, screw it. Forget it. No yeah. deal. And he just walks away. And he, he, it's more important for him to deprive the person, the other guy of the nine bucks than for him to get to lose the one dollar. Yeah. And that was essentially what I was doing in that, you know, without intending to, John Chu and I had sort of recreated that experiment in, in this game. Uh, and then I go into the evolutionary psychological roots of that, uh, which which I really enjoyed doing in that chapter. And that's that's a typical chapter in the book where you present uh, a seemingly frivolous example from a game, you know, two middle-aged guys bickering about, an, you know, a, a fake flower shop uh, and engaging in cultural appropriation because it's Chinatown, right? Of course, uh, yeah. Because John's half Japanese, so he has no right to that uh, Chinatown flower shop. <laughs> and then but then I spend the rest of the chapter kind of like saying, like, looking at me, like, what, what is it? You know, I'm a, I'm a rational person. I, I don't fly off the handle. 
but like, wh why was I willing to self-sabotage to, to shaft John? And then I got into sort of the literature of evolutionary psych when it comes to that kind of thing. Yeah. Oh, that, that literature is absolutely fascinating. They talk about uh, sort of uh, vengeance as being uh, sort of gratuitous vengeance against somebody who is being really unjust as being the, uh, the flip side of altruism. So in altruism, yep. you go out of your way to do something nice for somebody um, in in a way that it's not going to benefit you in any obvious way. Like it could be, you know, helping out a stranger or like somebody who's distant. You, there's no obvious way that they're ever going to be able to pay you back. Well, the flip side of that is that humans have also this tendency to sometimes want to punish somebody who just gratuitously in a way that endangers themselves or is it doesn't benefit them in any way and it actually might harm them but both of them are are two sides of the same coin which is our innate sense of justice so you will and i, I like how you pointed out that it also has a sort of prison quality where you know yeah make sure you like first day in prison if somebody like you know pushes you around just like you know beat the crap out of them and just like send a message that you you're not to be fucked with you know like well yeah because yeah. a lot of this it, it's based on uh, the results of these tests often will be based on whether people are watching right yes so uh you know if, if you and i were playing this game electronically and no one was watching and someone said okay i have ten dollars to divide i'm going to keep nine dollars and fifty cents and you're going to get fifty cents i might take it because it's like okay well but if if i do take it and people are watching you're sending a signal that says, I'm the sort of person who could be ruled over like that. Yeah. And and from an evolutionary point of view, that's not a signal you want to send. Because uh, if you're in a situation where you're a repeat player, uh, for instance, with a group of friends who play these kind of games all the time, uh, <laughs> even within the limited artificial confines of the game and your little game community, it may be a long-term rational decision to, to make John Chu suffer for offering me that kind of deal because, yeah, I'm probably going to lose this game because I've, you know, I've, I've, I've screwed John, but I've screwed myself. Yeah. But, maybe, but maybe the next time we play and the hundred other games we play after that, uh, people will think twice about um, screwing me gratuitously like that. And yeah. I think people, people do that in real life and in ways that misfire. People, you know, it's, I think it's one of the roots of road rage is that... Um, you know, you're in this public setting and some guy cuts you off and you, you kind of, there is this like primitive urge that says I, I have to somehow, uh, assert myself. And, uh, you know, I can't look like I'm just going to be uh, victimized like this in front of everybody because then, you know, my reputation within the, the tribe will be diminished. Like, you know, obviously this is all nonsense when you're talking about random people on a highway, but it gets to some vestigial feeling we have inside our brain that we sometimes have to act in, in a dramatic way to avoid the appearance of looking like a sucker or there will be repercussions down the line. And as you say, uh, we have to uh, do the opposite of altruism, which is we, we uh, deliver negative behavioral feedback to people who flout what, we're, what we regard as the rules of society. Um, you know, they, they have to be punished in some way. It, it helps regulate our society when that happens. Yeah, the the the, the rule that they usually call it evolutionary psychologists. Like I've heard uh, Jeff Jeff Miller call it this. He he calls it um, altruistic violence. 
So he says that a lot of um, there's these crazy cases of road rage where people will just like, you know, follow somebody who cut them off or cut somebody else off and they'll just go into a complete insane rage and follow this person and and be like screaming and yelling at them or even in some instances like trying to start a fight with them in the parking lot of the you know target or whatever like it's um he said this is altruistic violence so it's not just that you want to kind of send the signal that you're not to be trifled with because this person you're totally anonymous you're never going to see them again they're never they don't know who you are but it's this feeling that somehow this person is breaking the social contract you know it's that feeling you get i mean i'm sure you get this i i get um i take the bus and metro every day to um to work and sometimes if you see a young guy get on the bus and just sit down in a seat and then a little old lady gets on the bus and they don't get up and give the seat like that anger you feel you know what right. I mean? yeah, like you feel anger. this anger and you just you know and many times like i'm i'm the kind of like jerk that will go up and you know say to the guy like hey, you know what are you doing like get up like you know <laughs> what are you doing but that's not necessarily wise all the time it's you know. uh, it's also it's first of all it's the anger of small gestures which we see on Twitter too, but it's also um, it's it's a it's a uh, self appointed sociological guardianship where you see something happen and there's something that triggers and says you know I'm the thin blue line that that will stop this and it's it's part of the sort of like we all have this internal what may be called the broken windows theory of, of human society that like. If you see an indiscretion and you don't say something or do something, who knows what will happen next? Like, we have to enforce these these small norms, like getting up for an older person on the bus. Or, or take else, your hat off when you come into my church, you know, stuff right, like that. Yeah. Like just, or, you and know. if we don't do it, uh, you who know, else is going to do gradually it? Gonna be, yeah, also there's just gradually going to be this erosion of order, and who knows where it stops. It's sort of like a, the thin edge of the wedge. Uh, yeah, and I so anyway, I, I mean, we're getting to some pretty big topics here. But uh, when I when I played Chinatown, that's how this all started. This little anecdote from this game Chinatown, um, it really set off this introspection. I mean, all of the chapters in my book, and 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 Joan especially, Joan is very introspective. They really start with looking at how games make us feel and how we behave during games and how our friends behave and why people like certain games and don't and and ask. The question, what does this say about who we are as human beings? Uh, yeah. And every chapter goes off in that direction. What do you think about what do you think about somebody who is basically and I, I'm not setting you up here, but uh, is basically like a, a fun, decent person, but when they play games, like I have a, a few friends uh, that I'm one in particular I'm thinking of right now, and she's a delightful person. She's like so much fun she's smart she's like she's all around awesome but she becomes a total monster whenever she plays a game she's just she's so competitive it's almost feverish and if she loses she gets legitimately angry like really really angry to the point where it kind of makes everybody uncomfortable and you know the first time it happened um I think 
I thought it was because she had had like a little bit too much wine. I thought she was, uh, you know, that that was going on. But then actually, it turns out, you know, afterwards, her husband was saying, "No, no, no, she she's just insanely competitive. She cannot. She doesn't know how to lose well." Like, what what do you think's going on there? Like, what does that tell you about a person's character? So, um, I don't know because it, it could be an outlet for all sorts of things. Like it's obviously there's, there's something pent up, but it could be many different things that are pent up. It could be like, this is the only chance in life. This is especially true. So, well, I don't want to generalize, but, um, sometimes when I play with women, you know, women are not stereotypically women are conditioned to be more modest than men and they're like um you know they're encouraged from an early age to be more demure and to be more self-effacing uh you know it's very sexist but in board games and sometimes sports more generally it's like suddenly there's this socially acceptable venue where you can pump your fist and and take a moment and enjoy like the ego satisfaction of beating other people and so maybe, I don't know, this conjecture, maybe there's some pent up aspect of that. Mm-hmm. Um, so, I, but I will say this, is that, in, you know, in an odd way, I'm the wrong person to ask because I do almost all my gaming with like regular gamers, uh, convention gamers, uh, tournament gamers. Uh, and in that community, you just don't see that behavior because it's weeded out. Like, People do it and someone will say to the person, hey, look, you know, that was way to go, but, you know, just try and keep it down next time. Uh, whereas, like, the behavior And if they don't, about, they'll just, like, not get invited to the next one? Yeah, or, I mean, you know, so, like, in, unless they're completely emotionally dense, they'll they'll take the cue that, hey, you know, or, or they'll just, like, you know, af- after they start winning more, like, after the novelty of winning a board game wears off, they'll just naturally, like... <laughs> a little more relaxed about it. The sort of behavior you're talking about is actually more of a problem among occasional irregular gamers who haven't yet established like the rules of their, their group. And that's actually something we get into in the book is that, um, you know, you talked about Jordan Peterson discussing how the object of a game is to get invited back to the next gaming session. Yes. Which is true, but it's also true that like every group of gamers have, has a different social contract. Um, the social contract that's observed among like fraternity gamers on their fourth beer playing, um, you know, a party game like headbands or something like that is going to be completely different from a group of like really serious war gamers uh, playing some sort of World War II reenactment uh, that takes all day. Like there's just going to be different social contracts. And it may be the case that like extreme braggadocio and chest thumping and taunting is is not only tolerated but like actively permitted in some gaming groups it's like you know it's part of the fun uh and and these are people who've known each other for a long time there's a high degree of social trust and 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 they like that um Mm -hmm. it's not something i recommend with a new group of people because some people are going to get offended and i would just say that like you know i i just went to um a couple weeks ago i went to something called gen con which is uh, I think it's the biggest uh, board game tournament. So it's not not so much a tournament; it's a convention. It's uh, there's uh, tens of thousands of gamers, and there were there were thousands of us at any one time spread out over the playing field of Lucas Oil St- Stadium in Indianapolis, which is where the Indi- Indianapolis Colts play. And um, you know, I was there for a couple of days. I, I didn't hear one fight. Like I didn't, and I didn't hear anyone yell. Like I heard people cheering and like 
you know, sudden bursts of applause or groans or something like that. But like people, you know, getting bitter or angry or something like that. I didn't hear any of that. And the reason is because it's everyone there was like, well, not everybody, but almost everybody was a seasoned gamer and they knew the social contract and the way to behave. Uh, so there was very little unpleasantness. Yeah. It's, it's amazing. Cause I, my mom, you know, my mom is born in Manchester, British and she, brought she brought us up with that that very british attitude of like fair play and the attitude is like you know don't be a sore loser don't be a sore winner so if you win um just you know be gracious about it like sort of if it, if there's an element of chance involved uh be sure to you know maybe say well you know i was you know rolling lots of sixes or well, you know, sometimes you you have the cards, you know, like just be sure to sort of stress the the chance element if you win and definitely don't be like in your face, you know, like you don't like kind of jump up and down and be like like a dick about it, you know, but like uh, and then if you lose also be very gracious and say, "Wow, you really played very well tonight." and stress the element of skill in the person who who won and be like, that's it. She stressed that all the time. And if we were ever, uh, sore winners or sore losers, like she would really, really give a shit. Like she was, she was, that, that is not, that's not cool, you know? So, but not everybody has that kind of, I don't know, that, that conditioning. And so I <laughs> like playing with my friend, playing games with my friend, Alex, when, when I was little and like, he just, well, he was better, at most games than me most board games so he would win you know i would say maybe like two-thirds you know maybe even as much as like 75 percent of the time on most games but when he when he won he would just be like hey, hey, hey. <laughs> he'd be like a total jerk and then when he would lose he would like you know, flip the table and like yeah well you, you know i just couldn't get a good roll, whatever. You're probably cheating, you know. Like he would, and I remember being just like scandalized by this. But I mean, we were just little kids. You know? Well, yeah. Although it's interesting. So now that I think about it, there are examples of people I know who behave badly during games. Uh, but in in every case I'm thinking of, there are people who are either related to each other or um, like have a decades long history as friends. Because they feel they have a license to act out in a way with people they know well, in a way they would never dream of acting out in front of just mere acquaintances or people yeah. they just met. And there's also the they're case, regressing a little bit almost. Like. They are regressing. But there's also the case that, like, uh, siblings in particular, a game is never just a game. And, uh, <laughs> like, and, 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 and when you're looking at, at those people, if they're fighting or they're gloating, it's not really about the game. It's just like those those two people could be, you know, shopping for groceries and they'd be behaving the same way because it's it's you know it's the nature of their relationship. I this is not related to board games, but I remember I was playing in a tennis tournament and the our opponents were were brothers. Uh, they were you know my age at the time. I think they were in their you know maybe forty years old, and uh, one of them double faulted. Uh, at an important moment and the other one <laughs> this is terrible the other one turned around and said to his brother he said you see that's why i can never trust you 
Yeah. And I was like, yeah. And I was like playing, I was playing with a friend of mine. uh, And we just looked at each other and it was like, you could just tell it it was like, it was freighted with years and years of badness. Yeah. 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 It was like, and you didn't even want to know what it was about. And I'm sure they couldn't even describe, but it was, but I hated it because it, 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 it meant that we were playing against people who couldn't really enjoy the game because um, ideally, and again, this is something that's, that's in the book and Joan writes about it, this magic circle, you want to be able to, to draw boundaries around the game and say, this is the game and there's all this crap we care about, you know, all our anxieties and concerns that we leave behind when we play this game. But when, when this guy said to his, his brother, see, that's why I can never trust you, he was saying to him, uh, I have no intention of leaving behind all my horrible, horrible, bitter uh, grievances against you. In, in fact, I'm going to use this, you know, every time you make a mistake, I'm, I'm going to use it as a cudgel to prosecute those grievances. And it's like, yay, that's so fun for everybody else. Uh, it's it's not a game. It, it, and it, there were all the, you know, there were two other people on the court and, and it, it ruined the game for us too. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then oh it's yeah, happens. it's like being at a being at a dinner party and a couple starts getting into a really nasty argument in front of it. It's, it just makes it uncomfortable for everybody present. It's like, okay, I we're, have, we're just going to go home okay. now. I we'll pay the like babysitter. That. Like, <laughs> no, no, but I have, I have a, I have a, a strategy for, for diffusing those situations at dinner parties. I just start you singing give them ecstasy. What? I start singing. Like I, I start singing rap songs with all the, all the, <laughs> Because everyone just like immediately stops what they're doing and just like stares at me slack jawed. And I kind of dance around, slap, slap my own ass. But like it works. It totally works. I it absolutely works. But do you go with Tupac or do you like you Biggie? What do you like? I do. I reenact both sides of an East Coast, West Coast. Oh my West God. Yeah. But the important thing is that when it's over and you, you, tell and me you do gin and juice, you you have to emphasize to everybody that you just, that you were being totally ironic and you were just doing it to diffuse the situation because otherwise bad things can happen. Yeah. They'll like, <laughs> they'll keep going. They'll keep... Well, you know what you're saying about these, this kind of the magic, the magic circle and all in a way, that's kind of a metaphor for, um, for orderly democratic society, right? So you have conflict and the conflict can get very, very spirited at times. Um, but right. You have to be able to accept electoral losses. You have to be able to sort of, you, you work really hard to try and see your ideas carry the day or your candidate get elected or your party or whatever. But then if it, doesn't work out you have to be you can't be a sore loser you can't say well you know if i lose i'll know that it wasn't a a legit election right or you have you know there's all these things like i i remember after john mccain died there was uh, a really nice speech that was given who was it it was south carolina guy what's his name Lindsey Graham. Lindsey Graham. He he gave a wonderful speech at the funeral where he said, you know, John taught us how to lose. 
right? How to lose with grace, how to, you know, try really, really hard and kind of get, you know, take off the, the gloves and, you know, really fight, fight, fight hard. But then when you lose, just to lose with grace and just to walk across the aisle and shake hands and say, you know, we both thought we saw the best, you know, way forward and the, the people have spoken. And so let's, let's work together and just no hard feelings, right? Like, and that's, that it seems is really central to also being a good gamer, right? Being a good Democrat is, uh, you know, small D Democrat, a, a good person in a stable political society where, you don't have to worry that if your side loses, um, you're going to be have your property seized and be thrown in jail or exiled or, you know, where, where everything's kind of all or nothing. Right. So what you're talking about is is meta rules uh, and, and those rules, these meta rules can't be encoded in, in any kind of document. They are they're part of society's rules. You can have rules for governing an election uh, and you can have rules for your justice system. But you can't have, you cannot encode or enforce a rule that says, uh, if you lose an election, you cannot then become completely bitter and leverage the justice system to try and throw your uh, your enemies in jail. Uh, mm. You know, you can you can try and stop that, but ultimately these things go to culture, and uh, every form, every political system is is ultimately dependent on on a supporting culture which and we see that breaking down in the United States yes. uh, and and to a certain extent other jurisdictions uh one of the nice things about the gaming world is you know you can't pick your voters but you can pick the people you play with and <laughs> and and typically the, the the gaming groups that survive for years or decades are the gaming groups where everyone has it, it goes without saying they they obey the written rules that are in the rules to each game but just as importantly, they obey the meta rules, which govern the conduct of people uh, in, before, during, and after a game uh, and ensures that everybody gets invited back and has a good time. Yeah. Well, I know my, my father-in-law told me he was, I mean, he's retired now, but he was a vice president of a chemical company for, you know, for decades. And um, he played a lot of golf, right? I mean, a lot of business gets done on the golf course. And he said... Um, he was trying to explain it to me because I that's sort of quite foreign to my experience and I, I didn't really understand what was going on there. And he said, well, you know, actually you can learn a lot about a person by the way they play a game, right? So if, if somebody, by the way that they win, by the way that they lose, by the, the way that they compete, how competitive they are, how focused they are, uh, whether they just and there's there's all sort of the subtle things that people pick up on, right? And he said, for instance, you know, one of the first things you you pick up on and is if you play with somebody who um, who cheats, right? This is uh, you know very very obviously a tip off that you don't want to do business with this person, right? Yeah, uh, and also. Um... Donald Trump has done so many horrible, weird things that people <laughs> forget here, that yeah. the, the, the I, I'm the, not going to specify <laughs> that, that the, the book, right? The like one of them was go- the Commander in Cheat. Oh yeah, yeah. The <laughs> book—it's a whole book about how you know many, many dozens of testimonials over decades about Donald Trump cheats 
like a motherfucker at golf. He cheats so, so much. And he cheats for stupid reasons. He cheats when he's playing with friends. He cheats in tournaments. Um, and everybody knows he cheats. And he just shamelessly does it anyway. Yeah. And, and that tells us a lot about who he is. So what does it tell us? Uh, well, tells us he has a fragile ego, right? Because if you if you're cheating at a game, you're you're on some level you know it, right? Uh, you but it's so important that you present yourself to the outside world as as being as winning. But it's also consistent with stuff he does that isn't really a game, but he kind of gamifies life. Like the example was, remember where he became obsessed with how many people attended his inauguration? Yes. And yeah. it was like, and, and reporters would come visit him at the White House and he'd just like show them these, you know, photos from the park service that like, you know, well, if you twist it around this way and you put it under ultraviolet light, you can kind of see that there's 47 extra people. Over. Like, yeah. and, and everyone, like everyone were visiting him. was like, who the fuck gives, like, who cares? Yeah, like, who cares? You know, that was those months ago. Let's move on. <laughs> yeah. Or, or you saw like, and so this is like he's gamifying the 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 idea of how many people come to your inauguration. By the way, there's there's many reasons why more people would come to one inauguration than the other. It could have you know maybe the weather was was worse. But you saw like his his hurricane prediction. He made some you know batty hurricane prediction that uh, hurricane was going to make landfall in I think he said Alabama or something, and it was wrong. Uh, but like it was sort of like you know some sourpuss arguing about like whether his answer in Trivial Pursuit was right or like he he wouldn't let it go right the days yeah. would pass kept tweeting about it uh, you know because his ego is so fragile he gamifies life which which is bad like you know life is life and games are games and uh, if you treat life like a game of golf that you cheat at anyway uh, you're probably just going to be like competitive and bitter all the time uh, so. That's, you know, magic circle keeps things in, but the magic circle also keeps things out, right? Yeah. Well, it's very much, it's about having this capacity to to lose and to be okay with losing is so, so important. I mean, it's important in a, in a lot of things in life. But yeah, I mean, but it's not manners. This is important. It's not just good men. It means you like yourself. Uh, a person who doesn't like themselves is never going to be okay with losing because they're going to imagine that losing betrays some secret truth about them that they don't want others to know. Whereas a person who actually likes themselves is going to be like, oh, yeah, well, you know, I lost, but I'm still the same person I was yesterday. And uh, but that's that's something that lies beyond the scope of, 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 of mere good manners. It's, it's about uh, how you feel about yourself. So that, that's an, huh. to, my, to my mind, that's an important distinction. Yeah. Well, I mean, I guess it's hard because we we have this natural tendency towards being competitive and some more than others. Uh, and that's, there's nothing wrong with that, but it's finding ways to sort of manifest that competitiveness in a civilized way. Right. And I think games are, are practice for manifesting your, your aggressive and competitive tendencies uh, you know, I'm I'm talking conventional games that are you know not the super cooperative ones, but but those also in a way are are channeling certain kind of competitiveness. You're competitive in the group against you know this yeah these but, circumstances, so, right? So so this tension that you're talking about between um, being competitive but also being friendly and confident, like this this is a well established tension in macho culture. 
And, and why do you think so many like 1970s and 1980s era antiperspirant ads were of guys who just played basketball hanging around in a locker room? And uh, like, you know, they all have the same script. It's like, hey, dude, good game, man. I really showed you. I jumped at and, and the other guy's like, yeah, I'll get you next time. Ha ha ha. But like, and then, you know, they, they talk about how whatever Irish Spring or whatever, you know, they talk about the product. Yeah. But the first 10 seconds is a kind of kabuki, which is meant, well, it's not intended to, but it, it channels this idealization of especially male competitive behavior that's uh, playfully competitive and maybe intense on the court, but that uh, the egos of the winner and loser remain unaffected after the game. And, yeah. and that's like this paradigm of the perfect male competitor. And uh, sorry, I, I'm saying male because it's these historically it's been gendered, but it applies yeah. as much to women. To women. Uh, and, uh, and, then, and I guess that remains the ideal that, that you fight hard on the court, but it doesn't affect your ego such that when you're off the court, you're able to be playful and, and social. Um, for me, the, for me, the absolute gold standard is when you can compete with somebody and compete sort of vigorously. And this could be in a game. It could be in a political sort of disagreement or an intellectual argument or something like that, where you can compete vigorously with the person um, and you can even sort of like kind of shit talk each other a little bit and like kind of like like trash talk a little bit, but it's you never ever cross the line. Like if you can do that, if you can do that with somebody, uh, like when I can do that with somebody, I there's I know there's real intimacy there. There's there's well, trust. Look. There's trust. There's intimacy. It's like if you can like argue with me about something or compete with me against something. Uh, and you can even be playful and maybe like, you know, sort of like trash talk a little bit without ever crossing a line into being actually offensive and actually being kind of gross. That's that shows a, a like a, a level of. I don't, I don't know. The only way I can think to describe it is, is intimacy. It's like I, I really trust that person afterwards, after that engagement. You know what I mean? It's like you're teaching us how to seduce you. <laughs> I just <laughs> no, I just I think it's a, I think it's a, a ritual that that all people do to some extent, but in my experience, uh, men do on average more, right? And Eric, Eric Weinstein was talking about this on um, on the Joe Rogan podcast. He said that you know one of the ways in which men sort of establish intimacy with each other is through kind of teasing right and it's like a playful teasing but it's always like sort of right like close to the line but but you don't cross it you know like you you have fun but yeah you don't you don't make fun of my wife (laughs) like you don't you you don't cross the line but you get you know just right at the line and the fact that you know where the line is and that you can sort of play at that on those boundaries is it just really it's sort of like play fighting you know like when you look at like little kids play fighting or puppies or kittens they they're learning how how vigorously can we play while controlling our claws and teeth so that we don't actually hurt each other right yeah well look i just to segue out of this thing where you're listing your turn-ons and turn-offs <laughs> i'm gonna say that 
like this isn't this isn't just a human thing because yeah. I'm I, I'm a dog owner, right? Yeah. And it's interesting because like the last half of this book, my chapters at least were written uh, right after I'd gotten a dog for the first time. I had a dog when I was a kid, but for, you know, as an adult, I, I've had a dog for the last uh, year and a half, and I've noticed how sophisticated dogs are about play. Mm-hmm. Uh, when I go to the dog run. Um, you know, Montreal has dog runs. Toronto, there's a big one I go to. There's sometimes there's as many as 30 or 40 dogs. And it's really interesting because you will see Great Danes sometimes playing with like poodles, uh, a tenth their size. And it's interesting. It's like these dogs, you know, we don't think of them as obviously being intelligent on the level of humans, but like the Great Dane just immediately will know, okay, we're playing. I'm bigger. Uh, you know, I'm not going to play with this dog the same way I played with that lab or that uh, Dalmatian or yep. that other great thing. And they just, and you know, sometimes obviously, you know, some dogs are well-trained and sometimes they go over the line and, but over the course of an hour at the dog run, I will see hundreds or even thousands of individual interactions between different dogs. And 99.9% of the time they get their level of physicality right when yep. they play with each other. Yeah. And you know, it's, uh, it's amazing. It's, and they do it without written rules, obviously. And they, it's just something they instinctively know. And actually, interestingly, the exception, sometimes you'll see dogs that are not well, condi- well conditioned to play. Uh, what I've heard from trainers is often those are dogs that were separated from their siblings too early yep. because siblings will condition themselves, you know, like one dog will bite the other dog's tail too hard and the other dog will like scratch back and They'll, they'll learn like, okay, well, you do this, but you don't do that. And humans yeah. are somewhat the same way, but uh, we, we can learn a lot from, from dogs. Yeah, well, uh, my wife and I had a, had a, ran a day camp for a number of years in the summers. And I, there was a certain kind of kid, almost always a boy, uh, almost always a boy raised in a single parent household with a mother who was very, very kind of like, you know, wired and didn't want him to play rough. And it's just, you know, it's an only child with just a mom. And so this kid had no experience of, like, play play fighting and roughhousing with other kids, right? And so the kid would, you know, join the camp, and there would be this adjustment period. And I've seen this with so many kids over the years, where at first they would get super, you know, it's like a dog in the dark park, right? They see the other kids like playing and playing tag and like wrestling and having fun and they get so psyched, right? They're just like, whoa, you know, and they, they'll start. But as soon as they start playing, they'll like tag the kid and slap the kid right across the fucking face. Like, or they'll push them down and the kid starts crying and like, what are you doing? You know, this look like you're being way too rough, right? And, they're shocked and they're upset and it takes them a while to sort of learn, you know, just how to control your body and to like control your aggression so that you can play fight with somebody without hurting them. Right. You can play a game. Right. And they, and the same thing applies. Like if you have these kind of zero tolerance, like super progressive, like schoolyards where it's like, you're not allowed to play tag. You're not allowed to play dodgeball. You're not allowed to do anything. What happens is when those kids do actually play, they don't know how to play in a civilized way. They go too far, like way too fast. Like it's a, 
Joe Rogan was talking about this on his podcast. He said, you know, uh, people will listen to my podcast and I'm like, you know, joking around with a guy that I've, you know, literally been friends with for 35 years and we've been through so much. And so we're sort of taking the piss out of each other and teasing each other and joking around. And I'll run into like some guy like on the street that I don't even know. And he'll be like, hey, faggot. You know, <laughs> like, let's say, like, just like getting around and saying stuff. And, and he, he said, I'm always just totally shocked. I'm like, dude, you don't even know me. Like, what are you doing? Like, you can't talk to me. Like, you, what are you doing? Like, you can't. And it's, it's this kind of in the absence of adequate play, I think people are, they're under civilized. Yeah. Well, they don't know the laboratory of human intentions because uh, we have a sharp ability to, to know play from harm, from harmful intent, uh, but that ha it has to be developed as with dogs. Uh, it has to be developed in the schoolyard at home. And if you don't let a kid develop that because you treat every even possibly hostile gesture or word as a form of trauma, they're never going to de develop that ability. They're not going to be able to differentiate. Um, and by the way, some of us have, have difficulty differentiating anyway. And that includes the effect of media like, like Twitter or Facebook, where you don't see people's body language or facial expression. It's difficult to tell irony if uh, you have strangers meeting each other. So even people who are well-practiced in, in these um, determinations, uh, mm. they still have trouble. They still have trouble. And you add in that people who, um, things like debating, you know, I, we're going off topic here, but um, debating is a form of play. And yes. in my oh, house, yeah. in, my, Absolutely. In, in my household, uh, it was like a very well-established thing that, you know, so you'd have serious discussions. It's not like this was every night was Oxford debating society and uh, you were being scored on it or something like that. But it was recognized that like, if you were having a discussion about um, the Middle East, even, you know, serious subjects that there was an aspect of like, okay, you know, we're not the United Nations. Um, it's a serious subject, but we're having a debate. The debate has a beginning. It has an end. And when the debate is over, we're, you know, we're all going to brush our teeth and go to bed. Uh, if you don't do that, or if you regard engaging in that debate as a kind of like unsafe space, yeah. um, then you're, you're, you're always going to see any kind of debate. Since you're going to want to avoid debate, everyone's going to say, okay, well, we can't have a debate because, you know, that'd be traumatic for everybody. So we'll just decide what the correct opinion is. Um, and then we'll just kind of like encode that in whatever, you know, the school constitution or, or, or its equivalent or workplace safety guide. Um, because it's just, it's too painful to have a debate. So we'll just, we'll encode what 60% of people think as a kind of unassailable dogma. Yeah. Uh, and, and, and I don't think it's, Again, this is somewhat off topic. No, it I, actually it's it's right on topic because in I think part of the reason why gamers are so graceful in victory and graceful in defeat is just a matter of numbers. It's because if you're like an avid gamer, you've you've lost thousands and thousands and thousands of games in your life. And you've won thousands and thousands and thousands. So another, you know, one more game that you've lost or won is is a drop in the bucket. It's not a big deal. But if you don't have the experience of losing, of being wrong, 
on a fairly regular basis, then when it happens, it's it's sort of a novel experience, and your your ego is probably really wrapped up. It feels like trauma. Your, yeah, it feels like really upsetting, right? Um, but the thousandth time that you've, you know, like I, I remember very clearly the first time my hockey team like lost an important game, I was so bummed. Like I was so so bummed. I I didn't even I I lost my appetite. Like I didn't eat that night, and I I felt sick to my stomach. I felt horrible. I I went to bed early. I felt bad. Like I felt really 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 bad. But the hundredth time that my team lost, you know, after playing for like years, I ate my dinner perfectly well and slept like a baby. You win some, yeah, you lose some. Kind of sounds like your team really sucked. <laughs> <laughs> we kind of did. <laughs> well, I mean, they, they were teams that were much better than us, but we, yeah, I mean, but you just, you get used to the experience of, uh, so victory is is fantastic, but you understand that on another day you might not win, and uh, defeat is not the end of the world, right? Right, and likewise, if yeah. you have a good memory and you engage in political debate or you know whatever ideological scientific debate, you you were you remember times where you were totally wrong, and somebody demonstrated to you that you were just way off on that, and so. The idea that you might be wrong now about something is not soul crushing. It's like, well, if if that's the case, I guess I'll have to self correct. You know, it's not the end of the world, right? Yeah, no, but, it's, it's, but for some people, it really is the end of the world. We're talking about something that educators now, I think, commonly refer to as resilience. Yes, and gaming does build resilience. Yeah. So how does how do all these new kind of the good games? We've talked about the bad games, and we've talked about so how do these new Euro games sort of what's different about them vis a vis sort of the the games that most of our listeners have played or grown up playing or maybe play on the holidays now? So I think the difference is that they are very much geared toward um, people who have a certain envelope of time. The games aren't necessarily shorter, but like in Monopoly, you never know whether a Monopoly game is going to go an hour or four hours. Yes. Um, and if it goes four hours, there may be some people who are limited after an hour and some people after two hours. And, you know, if you're 12 years old, maybe it's not a big deal. You'll go watch TV. Uh, but for games that are geared toward adults, like if you know, if you reserve a whole night for board gaming, that's a big deal, and you don't want to spend an hour gaming and then an hour, another three hours watching other people game. Yeah. So what what typically happens is they're much more predictable in terms of how much time they take. Like you know, a game of Settlers of Catan for experienced players is typically going to take ninety minutes or something like that. Uh, it's never going to take thirty minutes. It's never going to take six hours. Uh, and the same is true of games like Ticket to Ride and other popular so-called Euro games. The themes of the games tend to be less militaristic. Uh, they tend to themes tend to be more inclusive for you know people of all ages, men, women. Uh, it's less like I'm going to make you bankrupt or <laughs> you know my army is going to defeat your army. Mm-hmm. Um, the themes tend to be about building. Like one thing I think game designers have learned from video games is people like to build things. They like their characters to get better abilities. They like power ups. They like uh, they like a storyline. So there's typically nice artwork, narrative, and a storyline. It's not just like disembodied combat like you know battleship or stratego or something like that the the older much older games 
Um, and, and, you know, an important thing is that there's, it's very rare that a situation is going to be completely hopeless for a player. There are mechanisms within the game for catch up, uh, which was definitely not true of some of the older games where it was just like, you know, more ruthless, like start to win and you win some of the themes we've discussed. Um, and also there are cooperative games available, which, um, there, there are some people who really don't like competition. They want to win or lose as a group. So there's games like Pandemic or Arkham Horror. Uh, there's a popular game called XCOM, which is an interesting mashup of um, like iPad technology and a traditional board game. There's a, a game called Fuse that I like to recommend to new gamers. It's a 10-minute game, but it's this uh, hair-raising uh, cooperative game that's, that's super fun. Uh, and this is like much more options out there. Like if you go... When I was a kid, is on is I, I got to tell you right now. After reading the book, I have a, a list of games that I want to play from the from the book. The absolute top of my list is Fuse. Fuse is a fun game. That it's sounds. I mean, that just sounds fascinating. It's like my wife won't play a game that that takes more than forty five minutes. Like she'll just she checks out. And so, and there's a lot of games. Like one of the most brilliant games that come that's come out in the last uh, couple of decades. It's called Patchwork. It, it takes like half an hour. It's like, you're, it's, it's about quilt building. Mm -hmm. I know that sounds like a ridiculous premise for a game, but it's basically like Tetris in a board game. And it's so much fun. Wow. And, um, and again, yeah, the game is over in half an hour, which like for a lot of people, that's what they want to play. I love big, long, that's what I like games too, tournaments, yeah, but, I like, a, but I like, you know, what? I, I'll I have four or five hours. I, you know, yeah. But I if like you insist on ones. that, there's just a lot of people who are going to be like, no, I, you know, I don't want to play 18 holes of golf. I want to play six holes of golf. Mm -hmm. And, and I think, um, as, as game makers have catered their product to like young adults or you know, in my case, middle-aged adults, uh, who, for whom it's like, I have this time envelope. I want to play the game. Uh, there's just many more selections, but, the gamer themselves, gamers themselves have to have to be part of the solution. Um, like it, it always is going to be a, uh, an ego risk to play these games. And that's, that actually the biggest difficulty that my, my co-author jo Joan Moriarty encountered encounters as a game teacher, isn't that the rules are too complex for people to understand people, people understand the rules. It isn't that the games are too expensive or they're hard to find. You know, there's, there's a million websites where, you know, top 10, top 20. It's easy to find recommendations. It's it's taking the plunge from an ego perspective and being willing to, like, do really crappy the first time you play a game. Yeah. Like, this figures into what we've been doing where, uh, you know, sometimes people, we live in a culture where a lot of people, you know, they, they get a trophy for trying. Yeah. And, uh you have to be willing to be like, hey, I played a four-player game and I came in fourth. Like, that can't be the end of your world. Yeah. Because uh, if that's the end of your world, you're not going to have fun learning new games. So of all the, the sort of the new games that have come out, what would you say, and I know this is, you know, Sophie's choice probably for you, but like, uh, what is the the top recommendation right now? And I and I, I totally acknowledge that you may change your mind a month from now or two months from now, but at the moment, what do you think is the top game? Uh, hard question to ask, to, to answer, but um, when, I, when I talk to couples and they're saying, like, you know, we just want a game for two people, 
the game okay, I just then I'm gonna qualify it. I'm gonna qualify it. Okay. Um, for a group, for a group for... of let's say, uh, for a group of uh, like. I'm asking, you know, for myself here. <laughs> so uh, a group of like, let's say six people minimum. A, a, a six person game. <laughs> um, well, there's a temptation. Like there's some, there's some games I really want people to play because they're great games. Uh, like there's a game called Imperial, which is sort of this diplomacy, diplomacy style game. That's just so much fun. But I think actually, if you're a group of six people, you know what the game I'd recommend is a game we've discussed. I would. It's not a well-known game, but man, is it fun! It's, it's Chinatown, and in Chinatown, the best way to describe Chinatown is it's Monopoly, where you skip straight to the deal making. You know, there's not a lot of dice rolling and moving tokens around and community chess and chance. It's just there's this mechanism for kind of people to get properties. And the properties are scattered all over the board. And the only way you can get income out of those properties is if you coalesce them. Like, you know, I'll give you this flower shop and this corner of the map. If you give me like your restaurant and you're in that corner of the map and your dry cleaner here. And as the game goes on, the map goes from like the scattershot random patchwork of different properties. I own this and you own that to like agglomerations of, you know, I've made this big laundromat here and you've made this big fish store there and and 90 of it is just deal making like how yeah. much is, is this and it, it's, it's a lot of like positive sum games too where you're it's, it's sort of totally, like yeah. you know monopoly was was originally created the original for to sort of turn people off of capitalism uh your description of chinatown is it's almost that um it's a game that's invented to turn you on to capitalism to show how actually the way the way markets work when they're working well is it's not you know zero sum it's positive sum it's like you've got that one piece of china that i need to complete my set and i've got the one piece that'll complete your set and so we switch and now we both have a complete set and so both of us now have more wealth <laughs> yeah and then we could just like go hang out in the locker room and take our shirts off <laughs> Well, now you're saying what turns you on, so that's... Uh, that's so, yeah, so, by the way, that reference will only make sense to people paying attention to what we were talking about 20 minutes ago. Yeah, yeah, like, I know, I know. Otherwise, <laughs> if someone just, like, randomly, <laughs> randomly, like, click play on this portion, it's going to be, oh, They won't cool. get it, they won't get it. Okay, but that's so fine, like, let them not get it, yeah. Like Phil has just become this, like, gay Tinder podcast. That's yeah, cool. well, it's been there, you know, it's been teetering it's on the been edge a, for a while. A yeah, subcurrent. So yeah, and and another happened. game... I'm going to recommend, uh, this is like, a lot of people will regard this as an old chestnut because it's, um, even casual gamers probably know this, it's, it's called Ticket to Ride. Uh, and Ticket to Ride is this rail building game where you're building rail paths across North America. What's great about it is there's like a dozen different, well, more than a dozen, there's, there's dozens of different variations. Ticket to Ride India, Ticket to Ride Europe, Ticket to Ride uh, Scandinavia. Um, Ticket to Ride England, and they all have like little variations. Uh, a lot of kids like it because they like the idea of connecting cities with trains, and, and the kids like learning geography. There's a certain age, you know, eight, nine, ten years old, where they, they like learning the names of cities and stuff like that. It's super fun. And a adults like it too. It can be played. It's like a lot of the best games can be played at sort of like a high strategic level and more of like just a sort of beer and pretzel level. Uh, I really recommend it. it is, and what's interesting, Ticket to Ride, is the inventors of the game uh, welcome third-party maps. So if you wanted to make like 
Ticket to Ride, uh, Anjou, you know, you could like make a Ville d'Anjou uh, Ticket to Ride where like you do with bus routes, you know? That's and wild. It's totally wild. And if you go online, you can download all these, uh, these user-made maps. So, you know, there's a Ticket to Ride Romania. I, I happen to know that because it's just out of curiosity. I clicked on that. And if you wow. and you can play that, so if you get bored, I'm gonna get I'm gonna get both of those games, Chinatown and Ticket to Ride, and also Fuse. Yeah, I'm gonna get those. Uh, I'm I'm definitely I'm gonna take you up on that, and I'm gonna tell you how they go. I encourage all of our listeners to go out and buy a copy of Your Move. And thank you so much for coming on the podcast. This was uh, this was a lot of fun. And uh, I guess we should head off to the locker rooms now, John. Yeah, well, uh, you know, a little <laughs> s- surprise for the fans. Uh, maybe they didn't know this, but, like, we're already in the locker room. Oh, yep, we yeah, are. Yeah. All yeah. right. <laughs> Take through, care, through man. The magic, through the magic of radio. Yeah. Yes. It's happening. The magic circle. <laughs> All right. Take care, man. Talk to you Bye. soon. Okay. That was fun.